My name is Matt Randalls, and it's my privilege to bring you a message from the Gospel of Mark today. I've met some of you over the years, and this is at least the fifth time that Chris has asked me to preach. In fact, the last time I preached for you was the Sunday after the election last fall, and now it's the Sunday after the inauguration. I'm still trying to work out what that means. Well, way back in 2007, the Atlantic magazine ran a feature on the American idea. More than 50 authors of all stripes answered the question, what is the fundamental American idea? What makes America, America? The answers came from such people as columnist George Will and Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Stan Lee, the creator of Spider-Man, Pastor T.D. Jakes and Tim LaHaye, the author of the Left Behind series, outspoken atheist Sam Harris and Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer, just to name a few. Not surprisingly, each one of these very different people had a distinct take on what the heart of America really is, and none of them said the same thing. But you know, we could ask the same kind of question of the church. What is the central idea of Christianity? Well, there are any number of legitimate approaches to come at this question. Let me submit to you this. Christianity is about Christ. It's in the name, right? It's about Jesus. And so right at the heart of the question, what is Christianity, is the question, who is Jesus? And Jesus himself put that very question to his first followers. And on that day, Peter got a gold star for he said, you are the Messiah the son of the living God? Right answer. Well, guess what? That question comes to us as well. The issue isn't what anyone else thinks about Jesus. It doesn't matter what your parents think or your kids or your spouse or your friends or any given celebrity or athlete or politician or influencer. The question comes to you. Who do you say Jesus is? And wait, there's more. This question works on more than one level. I'm sure plenty of people at Lettered Streets readily affirmed the right answer that Peter gave. Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And I affirm that as well. But let me be real. Sometimes it's my intellectual answer. It's the answer I know in my head is true, but sometimes it's not the answer that governs how I actually live in the moment. This is the deeper level. Every minute of every day, in every thought and word and action, we declare what we really believe. Our lives proclaim it. We may say and believe all the right things, but we also have what you might call tacit or unconscious beliefs about Jesus. In fact, it's impossible not to. It's inevitable. Our upbringing, our culture, our experiences, they all work together to shape our understanding of who Jesus is for good and bad. So for example, we may know on one level that we can utterly trust in Jesus, but at the same time, we're racked with worry, anxious about our circumstances, our jobs, where the money's gonna come from. Or maybe we know that we're forgiven in Christ, but we still live each day under the weight of a crippling guilt. Or maybe we know that our hope is ultimately in Christ but it really looks like our hope is in whether a particular political party is winning or not. We say one thing, 
but our lives paint a different picture. Today, we're going to see who Jesus is. And I want us to see Jesus in a light that I believe is far too often neglected, overlooked, forgotten, and even denied. Today, we're going to catch a glimpse of Jesus in all his glory, all his power and might, his radiance and splendor. Jesus, the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the one who has triumphed over sin, death, and the devil, the one who has overcome the world, who rules the nations with an iron scepter. This is the Jesus we put our hope in, the Jesus worthy of worship, of allegiance, the Jesus before whom all earthly concerns and priorities and desires fade to nothing. So let's take a look at Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 2. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with him except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matters to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. Imagine going to see a new Superman movie. I know, I know. Superhero movies are a dime a dozen these days, and Superman's been on TV and in the movies and the comics forever. Well, since 1938, anyway. Now, imagine you go to this big new Superman movie, and the whole thing, all two and a half, three hours of it, movies are so long these days, the whole thing is Superman disguised as Clark Kent. He's got those glasses on, he's dressed in his business suit and tie, and he's working as a reporter at the Daily Planet. His editor, Barry White, gives him story assignments. He goes out and gets the scoop. Jimmy Olsen tags along to get the photos. He has lunch with Lois Lane. There's uh, some romantic tension. But we never get to see him in his super suit. Now, maybe he uses his super speed to type up his stories super fast. Maybe he's able to discreetly race to the scene of the dramatic incident that he needs to cover. Maybe he even captures the bad guy and drops him off at the police station. But as Clark Kent, the whole time, he never slips into a phone booth and transforms into Superman with his blue tights and red cape and the big S on his chest. Can you imagine? The movie ends, the credits roll, and you never see Clark Kent become Superman. You never see him as who he really is. You know what? People would be outraged. People would give that movie one star. They'd trash it online. And in this day and age, whoever directed that movie would be canceled and never work again. Well, when it comes to Jesus, this happens all the time. Who Jesus really is has been so obscured, it's like people know all about Clark Kent, 
but have no idea who Superman even is. I'm serious. Can you imagine talking to someone who knows that Clark Kent is a character in the comics, but has never, ever heard of Superman? It's unthinkable. And yet people everywhere know the name Jesus, but have no idea who he really is. Think about it. Jesus is a curse word. Sure, he's the birthday boy in Christmas pageants, but Santa gets more press. Heck, you can buy advent calendars full of chocolate with Darth Vader on them. People may celebrate Easter, but the bunny and the candy steal the show. Even in the church, all too often we hold to an inadequate vision of Christ, a watered-down, weak-sauce, anemic vision of Christ. This takes all kinds of different forms, and we could talk about this for days, but let me just tick off a few. There's the ethical cop, Jesus. He's up in heaven watching you, waiting for you to screw up. A slightly better version of that is the WWJD Jesus. What would Jesus do? That can be useful a useful question to ask when facing an ethical dilemma, but if that's all Jesus means to you, it's not enough. There's the Jesus who's all love and affirmation, but who would never kick the money changers out of the temple, who would never say, go and sin no more, who never says to you, repent. There's the Jesus who agrees with everything you already believe. The Jesus who's on your side, especially when it comes to issues and politics. There's the feel-good Jesus. The Jesus who's there for you when you're lonely or depressed, but doesn't have much to say when you're doing well. He's not needed then. We could talk about the mystical Jesus, the good teacher Jesus, the Jesus who hates the people you hate, and so many more. But I think you get the point. None of these Jesuses are enough, and some of them aren't the real Jesus at all. A few weeks ago, Pastor Chris sent me a book that he found quite powerful, a book that picks you up and shakes you. It's called The Shattered Lantern, Rediscovering a Felt Presence of God by Father Ronald Rollheiser. I read it in a matter of days, and now I'm reading it again. Listen to what he says about our relationship to God and how it is so much less than it could be. Most often, God is not experienced as a living person to whom we actually talk, from whom we seek ultimate consolation and comfort, and to whom we relate person to person, friend to friend, lover to lover, child to parent. Rather, God is experienced and related to as a religion, a church, a moral philosophy, a guide for private virtue, an imperative for justice, or a nostalgia for propriety. God is more of a moral and intellectual principle than a person, and our commitment to this principle runs the gamut from fiery passion by which people are willing to die for a cause, to a vague nostalgia in which God and religion are given the same kind of status as the royal family in England, namely the symbolic anchor of a certain way of life, but hardly important to its day-to-day -day functioning. It is not that this is bad. It is just that there is little evidence in it that anyone is actually all that interested in God. We are interested in virtue, in justice, a proper way of life, and perhaps even in building communities for worship, support, and justice. But in the end, moral philosophies, human instinct, and a not-so-disguised self-interest 
are more important in motivating these activities than our love and gratitude stemming from a personal relationship with a living God. God is not only absent from our marketplaces, he is frequently absent from our religious activities and our religious fervor as well. There is more than a little unbelief among us believers. God is a neurosis, a religion, a cause, and only rarely a living, informing, comforting, challenging person whose reality dwarfs that of our everyday world. Wow, the reality of our God dwarfs that of our everyday world. I love that line, and it captures the transfiguration so well. I was raised in the church, and I went to Sunday school from my earliest years, so I don't remember when I first heard the transfiguration story, but it was probably in Sunday school with the flannel graph. Remember those? But what I do remember is thinking that it was really weird. Jesus is suddenly transformed. He's blazing with glory. Two Old Testament heroes show up. Jesus talks with them for a bit, though we don't hear what is said. Peter offers a clumsy suggestion to build some shelters, which is ignored. God speaks from heaven saying, this is my son whom I love, listen to him. And then it's over. I didn't get it. Maybe you don't either. Indeed, there are layers of meaning here. We could dig into the significance of Moses and Elijah. We could talk about God's voice breaking out from heaven and how it echoes what transpired at Jesus' baptism. We could discuss why Jesus didn't want them to tell anyone about it. But let's leave those features for now. You see, it's easy to approach this story intellectually, asking who, what, why, and how, and miss the visceral power of the scene. Imagine being in Peter's sandals, standing on that mountaintop, wondering why Jesus brought you there. And while you're looking around, pondering what might happen, suddenly Jesus is completely transformed before your very eyes. Instead of dressed in his ordinary dusty clothes, he's suddenly robed in blazing white. Your jaw drops, your heart stops, and you can barely look at him. It's like trying to look straight into the sun. You thought you knew him, but now you're at a loss. You knew he was a holy man and that he somehow could call on the very power of God. You've seen him heal the sick and cast out demons, but now you don't know what to think. Who is this man? You have no words. Indeed, words are feeble things, completely inadequate to your experience. They say a picture is worth a thousand words, but it's not true. No amount of words can capture what you've seen. You've been given a glimpse into the reality of God that dwarfs our everyday world. This isn't the Jesus that gets talked about. This is the Jesus that is all too often ignored, overlooked, even denied. We like our domesticated Jesus, the Jesus that's on our side, the Jesus that is all love and affirmation. We don't know what to do with a Jesus whose very presence could unmake reality. Is that an overstatement? I don't think so. Let's jump over to one of the final appearances of Jesus in the Bible. It's in the first chapter of the book of Revelation. John, the author of the book, hears a voice behind him. And then he says, 
When I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were blazing like fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. This is Jesus, the Lord of the church, which is what the lampstands represent. He's dressed in a robe like a king or a priest. He radiates holiness and purity and nothing escapes the gaze of his blazing eyes. All is laid before him. His feet are like bronze, that is, they're strong and powerful, the opposite of feet of clay. His voice, like the sound of rushing waters, is the voice of Almighty God. He holds seven stars in his hands, that is, the angels of the seven churches. More to the point, the church, the entire church, is in his hands. He's in control. When he speaks, it's with the sword of his mouth. Just as God created the world with a word, so Jesus speaks with that same power. And if all that isn't enough, he's as radiant as the sun shining in all its brilliance. His appearance is blinding. No wonder John collapsed as though dead. No wonder he was overwhelmed. He was confronted with Jesus revealed in glory and his world was undone. We need this vision of Jesus. Our picture of him isn't complete without it. This isn't trivial. This isn't a footnote or an afterthought. This is Jesus, Lord of Lords and King of Kings. I would go so far as to say this. We need this vision of Jesus in glory because it puts everything else into perspective. It puts our hopes and dreams and concerns and priorities and values and convictions in perspective. How? Let me tell you a story. Years ago, I was in the worst car wreck of my life. It was 2004. I was driving, and it was totally my fault. My family was with me, my wife and my two girls in their car seats. I looked one way, I looked the other. I saw that I could just make it, and I stepped on the gas. But I was wrong, almost dead wrong. I didn't see the other guy until the front of his car was crashing into my door and glass was exploding all around me. We got spun around and somehow I wasn't killed. Better yet, my wife and my daughters weren't killed. That devastating car totaling accident was totally my fault. And I really hate screwing up. But in that moment, I didn't care. My car was destroyed and I liked that car. But in that moment, I didn't care. My clean driving record, my good insurance rates, gone. But in that moment, I didn't care. We were on our way to lunch with friends that I'd gone to grad school with and whom I hadn't seen in a long time. And I hate missing out on things. But in that moment, I didn't care. 
because all that mattered was that my family was okay, that miraculously no one had gotten hurt. You could say that everything else paled by comparison. Paled? Every other concern ceased to exist. Nothing else mattered. Peter on that mountaintop seeing Jesus transfigured, the prophet John seeing Jesus in glory, in those moments, nothing else mattered. The significance of anything, everything else, was reduced to zero. The vision of Jesus revealed in glory relativizes everything. All our priorities, all our hopes and dreams, everything we're fighting for, Whatever you think about who won the election and who lost or what our country is about, that whole American idea thing, it all fades to nothing in the light of the glory of Christ. And this is good news. This means our troubles don't get the last word. This means that suffering and death don't get the last word. One of the founding members of the church I planted in Helena, at the same time Chris planted Letter Streets, she died this week taken from her family and loved ones too soon by cancer. But death doesn't get the last word. It's not the end. Jesus says, I am the living one. I was dead. And now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Jesus endured the cross and scorned its shame. He died that we might live. And our hope is in him who has triumphed. This world will pass away but we have a hope that cannot be shaken. Nations come and go, wars rage. The pandemic turns the world upside down and Jesus sees it all, his feet planted firmly, the stars in his hand. What do we put our hope in? Nothing less than Jesus, the son of God, the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. One more thing. After the sight of Jesus transfigured, Peter and the rest go back down the mountain. Life goes on. And then Peter, even after all he'd seen, denies Jesus when the heat is on. And so it is with us. We lose sight of who our Lord is. We forget who we are in Christ. We forget that we've been bought with a price, that our lives don't belong to us, they belong to another. And so we indulge in that sin that so easily entangles. We gossip about that coworker, tell that joke, cheat on our taxes, get back at that person who hurt us, hurt us, give in to anger, lust after that person, have that affair. And then, just like with Peter, the sun comes up in the morning and we recognize that we've denied Christ in our hearts, in our words, in our actions. Or maybe we're so numb, maybe we're so worldly that we don't even recognize it. Maybe this very moment, right now, is a wake-up call. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Even Jesus in his power and glory. Jesus, the Son of God, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus, the Almighty the ruler of nations, who rules over them with an iron scepter. Jesus, who conquered death and hell and the devil. Jesus, the judge of the universe. Jesus, the one who gave his life for you and who lives forever and ever. 
He is worthy of all your devotion, all your love, all your commitment, your whole life. Amen.